your heart for your children. And as we sang earlier during one of the songs this morning, that, that you are the father to the fatherless, that you care for us with an incredible love. We're thankful for our earthly fathers that you've given us. And we do want to honor them today, but we want to honor you most of all. Thank you for providing a way to have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. We've also been singing about how deep your love that you give your only son to make a wretch your treasure. So thank you that you would, that you would treasure us that way. I pray as we uh, start a new sermon series this morning that, that your blessing would be upon it. Would be upon the study of a man who is flawed, but yet a man after your own heart. I pray we learn well from his life and what you're doing, what you did in his life. Bless our time even now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we finished Sermon on the Mount last week and I wasn't even here for it. You know, that's a good way to finish. Was it a good one? All right, I heard it was a good one. <laughs> I've not listened to it yet, but, but thanks, Andrew, for jumping in and, and doing that and uh, being the guy on call, too, you know, jumping in. I don't even know what happened while I was gone. I have no idea. So the church is still standing, so life is good, I think, and uh, we'll keep going. I got a suntan out of the deal, so uh, I think I say that, I say it's funny, but also thanks for praying for us while we're gone. Uh, it was incredibly relaxing. I think I was at the beach almost every day, even during the conference days. You know, by, by the end of the day, Christy and I made a beeline for the beach, tried to catch the sunset, and uh, it was just extremely relaxing. The conference was really cool, very very helpful in a couple of the things that I heard. Uh, so anyway, it was, a, it was a good time. Thanks for praying for us in that. So I want to look at a minor character in the Bible. I say that in jest because... Uh, David's not a minor character. Uh, it's a big character. So um, I want to look at his life, but uh, excited to be done with Sermon on the Mount and that I think that was very challenging for me to preach through and uh, now to get to the end kind of feel like, oh, you know, did it. You know, of course, not as good as Jesus did it, but, you know, we did it. So let's, let's start something new. All right. <clears throat> when the prophet comes to town, everybody's talking especially the people in little town of Bethlehem. The prophet is here. And when the prophet comes, people feel a little bit of trepidation. You know, what's going to happen? Does the prophet bring good news or bad news? Prophets speak to the people for God. So will he bring a good word from God or a harsh word from God? And so everyone's talking. Everyone's nervous. Everyone has a little bit of, of anxiety because... The prophet is here. This prophet, one of the very first prophets, is a kingmaker. You know, who who he anoints is going to be the king. This is an important person in Israel. Here is a celebrity in their little, little town. He also has a little bit of a reputation because, you know, there, there have been some things that have happened in Israel's history. King Saul has gone out to fight other kings, other armies, and at least one of those kings, King Agag, was recently spared by Saul, and, and then Samuel kind of came in, the prophet, the prophet came in and said, the Lord wanted this guy dead, and Saul, you didn't kill him. And, and then Samuel took his sword and did the job for Saul. So, so Samuel is the prophet who speaks from God, sometimes executioner, you know, so, so Samuel has quite a reputation, and he's here in little Bethlehem. So you can pardon the whole town for being a little bit nervous about what the word is going to be. And so the first thing everybody wants to know, and the elders of the town say, do you come in peace? Do you come with shalom? Do you bring a good word? And he says, yes, I come in peace. Okay. You know, it's kind of like after you get the word from the doctor, you know, is it good or bad? And, and you can't sleep the night before. It, it's one of those things where there's, there's news coming, you know. Has, has the baby been born yet or not? You know, what's going on? And, but, but 
Samuel comes with shalom, he says, with, with peace. So now we can, go, we can go along with just being excited, right? You know, you, you can set aside the fear, set aside the trepidation, and now you can just be excited because he's here and he wants to make a sacrifice to God. So he wants the town to get together. But then he invites one particular family, a father and all of his boys. He has eight of them. And he invites them out of the whole town. He invites them in particular and says, Sanctify yourselves. Wash your clothes. Set yourself apart for what's about to happen. So now, this father's thinking, something's about to happen with my family. Uh, An honor is about to happen to my family. We've been invited to sacrifice by the prophet who comes in peace. And so the family's there. And then the prophet says, I'm going to anoint one of your sons to be the next king. And now all sorts of fear rushes back in. All sorts of crazy fear comes from that sort of statement. I mean, you think about this, because they have a king, and the king has a family. The king has a son, Jonathan, that would be the next in line. And, and the king is... He's a tall man. He's a strong man. He looks every bit like a king. He looks above the average citizen. But he's also a little crazy. He's also a little unstable. He, you know, even though he looks like a king and he rules like a king, he's got this this unpredictability about him. And if prophets make you nervous. Unpredictable kings also make you nervous. Very much so. And one of his boys is going to be the next king? What does that mean? But you need to set that aside, set it aside, because you can't stop the train. It's going. I mean, here we are. It's time to go. And so the sons come in. The sons come in. The first one goes by. And and this father thinks, I have an idea of who, who this is going to be, probably. You know, which son is going to be the next king. But keep it to myself, and here comes the sons. Eliab goes by, the firstborn. Everybody knows the firstborn is like the one that gets, you know, the double the inheritance. He has leadership in the family. I mean, this, is, this has got to be the guy. And yet it's not the guy. And then you have Abinadab, secondborn. He's not the guy. And then Shama, thirdborn, he's not the guy. And then number four comes in. Why, why even go for names at this point, you know? Number four comes in, right? Number five comes in. Nope, not him. Number six comes in. Not him. Number seven. Now, it's got to be seven because seven is the Lord's number. You know, the seven golden lampstands, you know. Seven is in, in, in the tabernacle structure. So, so certainly seven. God's number, the number of perfection. Number seven comes in. It's not him. Eight, well, eight's the afterthought. Eight comes after perfection, you know? Eight. And, and so there's an awkward silence, and eight's not here. There's an awkward silence, and, 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 and Samuel's looking at Jesse, the dad, and Jesse's looking at Samuel. And then Samuel breaks the silence with a painfully obvious question. Painfully obvious. Is this all your sons? Like, happy Father's Day. You think the dad would have said that, you know? Like, well, I got one more, you know. He doesn't say anything. Why does the prophet have to say it? Like, we have to go through the line again and get the seven back through? No. Is this all you got? Oh, I got one more, the shepherd boy. Yeah, bring him in. And then he is seen, David, he is, he's the one. And he gets anointed. I want to look at 1 Samuel 16, at the beginning of David's story in the scripture. I said David, a minor character, and I hope you heard the jest in that, because he's probably, aside from Jesus, one of the most major characters in all of the Bible. So uh, I want to spend the summer looking at his life and and learning from it. So here's 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? 
Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So a little bit of setup here. Saul looked every bit like the king Israel wanted. In fact, God hadn't intended on giving them a king. They had judges. They had Samuel the prophet. God was the king of Israel. And yet the people said, we want a king like the nations. And God said, no, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. So I'm going to give them what they want. So, so sometimes I, I scratch my head and go, okay, God, you gave them King Saul, who had some bright spots. I mean, Saul prophesied at times, and the Spirit was working in Saul at times. Other times, Saul would not obey at all. You know, he'd just do what he wanted to do. But God picked him. And looking at the text of Scripture, I'm thinking, you know, why did God pick him? And I think the answer is, God gave Israel what they were looking for. They want a king like all the nations. And God said, here's your king. Here's Saul. He's tall. I think, I think when Saul's first introduced, I think two times at least in that passage, it says how tall he is. Taller than everybody else around. So he's got height. He looks like the man. And so God gives Israel the man that they're looking for. He looked like a king. He didn't have a heart that really followed God, though. And in his disobedience, which I'm not going to jump all into this morning, uh, you, you could read about that on your own. You could read 1 Samuel 15, the chapter before. Um, Saul did what he wanted to do. If God said do A, Saul, Saul said, I'll do half of A, and I'll, and I'll do some of B. You know, I'll do it my way. And God finally said, I'm done. I'm done. You don't follow me. I'm done with you. Okay. So now we're in verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord had said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. See, they just stopped naming them. just too many, you know, just forget it. And Samuel said to him, uh, The Lord has not chosen these. So he said to ask Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There's still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So they sent for him, had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went up to Ramah. And I'll give you a little verse 14 or two. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, we'll get there too, but... Okay, it's Father's Day, and I, I just... What I really want to do this morning is talk about what does God see versus what does the world see when we look at men. So it's, it's a man-centered sermon, and my outline is really simple, and it's this. People look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And I want to I dig into those two ideas. People look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. You can pull out your notes and follow along. Email played a nasty trick on me last night, and my email did not go to uh, Jim in, with the slideshow. So it's not there. I don't know where it went. It's in cyberspace. It'll land tomorrow. We don't need it tomorrow. So um, anyway, no slideshow. Sorry. But uh, we'll try to keep up with my notes. It'll be 1AB and then conclusion, then 2AB conclusion. So, simple outline. People look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So, so here's the thing that ought to strike you in this story, I think, is you've got the prophet Samuel who obeys the word of the Lord better than King Saul does. It does what God tells him to do. Uh, anoints King Saul as the king previously. I mean, this is a guy that's led Israel for years. 
and it had a major part in Israel's history and, and what's happening in the country. He, he's, as a young boy, he was sensitive to hearing God's voice speaking to him, even as a, as a young person. So this, this, is, this is an incredibly insightful person, a spiritual man. And yet, when the people, walk, when the sons walk in front of him, Samuel, sure, he knows which one is going to be it. And first, it's Eliab. You know, he thinks for sure the firstborn is the one. And I'm thinking, you know, you anointed King Saul and saw how tall he was, how strong he was, how much he looked like a king. He looked like a celebrity. And how did that turn out? And so here you are looking at the sons go by and you look at the outward appearance again and you think you can judge it on that? Like every son is equal and each one could be it, but you, got, you know the one. It doesn't work that way. And God makes the point of, of telling us we have an issue. We look at the outward appearance. When it comes to defining manhood in this culture, we've got a problem because we look at appearance. That, that, that's our issue at hand. Why is, why is this such an issue? Because point A, 1A, is this. Because our, our vision is superficial. It's superficial. You, you can't look into someone's heart. You don't have that ability. What you can see is what's on the outside. And so we all get very used to judging people by outward appearance. Outward appearance. I mean, why do we need labels on clothing that, that show us who designed that shirt? What, what famous brand designer? You know, Because we want to make a statement that, that this person designed my shirt. I bought it from this, this company. It's making a statement about your appearance. And so we all live in, in this society where we can look at people and think, I see what they're wearing and I can make a judgment call just on what they see. Now, it's not bad to dress a certain way. I mean, I'm wearing a shirt and tie. I think that's appropriate for a pastor to wear on Sunday morning. It's not a big deal. It's okay to dress nice. It's okay to buy clothing to wear, whether it has a label on it on the outside or not. It's okay. But, but just know it, that's a symptom of the fact that we can't see the heart. And in fact, what we do is we just look at the outside and make a judgment call. So if you wear the right label, you could be rich, wealthy. And if you don't, maybe you're not. Or maybe you're just humble. But, but we, we, we look at these things. But secondly, our vision is also limited. That's B. Our vision's limited. So it's also the fact that we can't, we just can't see into the heart. You, you can't, you can't go there. So when I interviewed for this position at this church, they still ran a background check on me, you know. And, and, and if you're gonna, if you're gonna volunteer in the kids ministry department, I don't care if if you're like you've been the saint for like 50 years. We're still gonna run a background check on you, because the problem is we can't see into your heart. So we've got to look at actions, fruit, uh, spiritual fruit. And so I've often thought about the, you know, the pastoral search process, you know, and doing Pastor Andrew's search process just a few years ago. Um, the, the, the struggle for me always is you could have a lot of technical expertise. You could know how to teach a message. But, but do you have a heart that backs up that message? Because... If you don't have love for people, I don't care what a good speaker you are. And if you're not gentle and patient, I don't care if you know the right words to say when someone's in the hospital because the heart's going to shine through. You know, they say doctors actually can't tell you whether you're healthy or not. Have you heard that before? Doctors can't tell you whether you're healthy. They can only tell you if you're sick, you know, if you're sick. Because you can go into the doctor and the doctor says, you look good to me, you know, your, your weight's right. Uh, everything, all the outward signs look right. And you can walk out of there and, and in a month you can find out you have cancer, you know. So, so the, the doctor can't tell you whether you're healthy. I mean, there's outward indications, but mainly they can tell you whether you're sick by the outward appearance. And so we 
can only see what's on the outside, but God sees into, into the heart. And so our fruit and even our sins show us what's going on in the heart, right? You know, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did you ever say something to somebody and go, whoa, what was that? Well, that was just your heart. You'd probably been thinking about that for months and it just slipped out that day. You know what I mean? You just, the, the, the filter, you ever say the filter came off, you know? Sometimes my filter comes off. I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? Oh, yeah, I'd been thinking about that. It just came out today. So God knew it was there for months, but now people know it's there because I said it. You know? The heart. So however we define masculinity, biblical manhood, it has to come from the heart because that's what God sees. So let's make a conclusion here. Um, we're limited in what we see. The conclusion is our world doesn't understand God's definition of manhood because it's always going to look at what's on the outside. It has to see what's on the outside. It has to see what the man looks like, what he dresses like, what he does. How much does he make? How important is he? And God says, I just want to see into your heart and then I'll know what kind of man you are. That's how I define it, by looking at the heart. So um, I want to make just a little side comment here because I think this is a huge struggle in our culture. And some people have asked me if I'm going to do a message on um, gender transition, you know, gender change, and because it's a huge to- hot topic in our society. I don't know if I've got one planned right now, but as an application point on biblical manhood and where this goes here, I'd be reading a text like this and saying to myself, if you're a person and you want to change your gender, and I know I'm speaking stereotypically now because you know some kids are born and there's a mixed gender thing going on just because there's a, there's a birth defect in a sense. I'm not talking about birth defects and trying to figure that out. I'm talking about when, when you are one gender that God made you and you want to change to another, I think you look at a verse like this and say, ask the question, what's going on in the heart? What's going on in the heart? Because if there is a desire to be something that God didn't make you to be, I'd say there's a lot of confusion there, a lot of confusion, a lot of angst, a lot of pain. And even though this issue, I think, I think pretty clearly when it says God made them male and God made them female, God defines what you are. I think that's just cut and dry. Genesis, you know, go back to the beginning. Jesus said it too. God made them male. He made them female. Whatever God made you is what you are. And you need to figure out how to accept that because he gave you that. But I think the church's response, because we're talking about application here, is this. That if we encounter people that have done this transition, we ought to have a lot of compassion. Because what we have seen is that there's a sickness in the heart. There's a sickness in the heart. And the fact is, transitioning genders will not heal that sickness. Only Christ will. And that ought to arouse all of your compassion for somebody. At least it should. It should. I think we saw some of those folks while we were in San Diego. You know, just, it's, an, it's, it's a different kind of place. The question is, the question is, Will I look at them with compassionate eyes or do I look at them as the enemy? And I think God would say, I see the heart, I see the hurt there and the ache there. Will you love as well? Um, doesn't make it right. It just means that we love. I also want to say this. I want to skip ahead just, just briefly into the next session of, section of chapter 16. I'm not going to read it all, but... Um, if you check out the next section, maybe section maybe in um, verse, you know, f- fifteen, Saul is being tormented by this evil spirit, and I'm not going to dive into that. I might talk about that in a few weeks, like what what that whole thing is about. But um, basically, Saul has this issue, and he's being tormented, and and they said well, his servants are like, how can we help King Saul? Let's get a harp player, and, and play the harp, a man that's full of the Lord, and help our king. Because he's having a hard time. He is conflicted. You know, so they're being compassionate. He's conflicted. How can we help him? And so they say, okay, I know. 
Uh, this is verse 18. One of the servants said, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man. The Lord, and the Lord is with him. So they bring him in, and David comes in and plays his harp, and, and, and it soothes the soul of Saul. It, it's a soothing effect. God is with him. He's a good-looking guy. He knows how to carry himself with all of the the princes and the court and all of the royalty around Saul. And David, would, it says he, just, he knows how to carry himself in those situations. So he's a good guy for this job. He's a harp player. Now, I think at this point, we say, um, half of that description is very masculine, right? He knows how to carry himself. He's a handsome man. He's a warrior, you know. But he plays the harp, right? Now, Heart playing, do we have any male heart players here? All right. I don't want to make sure I'm not talking about you. you know, but, but let's just say this. Heart playing feels like a more feminine quality. You know, uh, like I, I just feel that way. But, but then again, so is, um, so is writing poetry. And how many of you have spent any time in the Psalms and enjoyed your time there? Well, thank you, David, the warrior, king, shepherd, poet, you know, so I think some of us, we need, to, we need to break through some of these like, well, we all know men do this, and we all know men are like that. And our culture st- struggles to figure that out, you know? I mean, we saw the guys in San Diego that had like the, they're dressed in a shirt and tie and a suit, and they had this big, huge, bushy beard, you know? Like just a huge, unkempt beard, all exploding all over the place. It's like, and then I told Christy, I, I said to Christy, I heard someone say this once, you know, but do they know how to run a chainsaw? You know, they've got the suit on, they've got the beard, they look trendy, but can they work a chainsaw? If they can't, I want nothing to do with it. So um, I think we need to like look at masculinity and say, you know, uh, it, it breaks out of our, whatever our stereotype is, we can break some of those things down. Yes, there are stereotypes and those are fine, but, but you break some of that down and you can have a poet. It's okay, Right? I mean, David's always writing psalms about meditating on his bed. Do you men meditate on your bed? Or do you just go to sleep after a hard day of work? You know, I don't know. But it's okay. It's, it's okay to define this in a way that if God made you musical, then for goodness sakes, play your music. And if God made you write poetry, write some poetry. We'll use it in church. I'd love to do that. Next week, I plan on reading a poem that my brother wrote. Uh, he wrote it about David and Goliath, and that's next week. So let, let's, let's kind of be flexible enough here to say that God gives different talents to different people, and some of those we might define as more feminine. By the way, I'm sitting there in, in this conference with uh, Larry Osborne, right? You know, maybe some of you might have read his books on the church, Simple Church. No, that's Simple Church. Sticky Church is Larry Osborne. Anyway, he's doing a seminar, and uh, he says, you know, Pastors tend to be feminine. And I'm like, well, thanks. You know, that, that's great. And he, he's one too. He's one, you know, and he's like, I know, I know. I mean, look at us. Look at us. We like to study. And we like to read a lot. And we like to uh, talk a lot. And we like to meditate, you know. And he's like, those are all more like on the feminine end of things, stereotypically, you know. But this is what we do. And I thought, that's, that's, that's a good word. I mean, I, I can accept that. Because that's the way God wired me. It's okay to be that kind of man. A man after God. So, uh, I want to keep going here, but I'm just saying, if you let the world define manhood, we wouldn't have a warrior, shepherd, king writing poetry that we've used for thousands of years and gained strength from the Psalms. You know, every time, almost every time I go to visit someone in the hospital... I bring a psalm. I pray about it. Like, what psalm should it be today? And then I read it, you know? And sometimes I've had people say, that was exactly what I needed to hear today. That, that's exa- Praise God for the poets and the artists. And praise God for the warriors. All right. Let's keep moving. So man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So part two here is the Lord looking at the heart. Now, to talk about the heart for a minute, I want you to look at Psalm 14, which is a psalm of David. <clears throat> psalm chapter 14. 
I had in my mind I was going to look at a ton of psalms this morning, but I'm only going to get to maybe this one, maybe another one. We'll see. Um, Psalm 14. You've probably heard this one before, at least parts of it. Psalm of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There, was, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. What's God looking for? What's God looking for? And I ask this question to say, what was God looking in David? He's looking for this. Are there any who understand? Any who seek God? Verse 3, they've all turned away. They've all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Does does those words sound familiar to you? Because they're also used in Romans 3. Would you look at Romans 3 with me? We'll play a little hopscotch here. So David writes that God is, is, is looking down from heaven saying, I'm looking for a man who is seeking me. And I'm not finding many. Romans 3. Uh, here we go. Here we go. So uh, Romans 3, uh, verse 11, the Apostle Paul quotes David, there's no none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Uh, let's jump down to um, uh, verse 23, though, because now Paul wants to make some conclusions about this. And, and, and his point is that I don't care whether you're a Jewish person or a Gentile person, none of you seek God the way you should. All of you are sinners. That, that's Paul's point. And then he gets to verse 23, And this is the one you memorized in Sunday school probably years ago. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you had to memorize that at some point in your life? Just, I want to see. Yeah, a lot of you. And and they used to teach you, remember the Romans road way of doing evangelism? Some of you probably even use that today. Like you you take people to verses in Romans and show them how they need a Savior. And this is one of those verses that everybody should know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? And and what does it mean to say that nobody does good? Nobody does good. That's what the Word of God says. Nobody does good. So take a person, and let's say a person who does not believe in God gives $100,000 to a hospital in in, uh, Africa somewhere. $100,000 to help people. Has that person done good? Well, sure, except the Bible says no one does good. You know, nobody does good. So has that person done good? Or is the Bible, is the Bible wrong on that? What do you say? Do people do good? Well, sure, sure, that's a good work. But the Bible says no one does good. The Bible says everyone falls short of the glory of God. Are you uncomfortable now? I hope. A little bit. <clears throat> okay, so... So Paul quotes, nobody does good. Everyone's fallen short of the glory of God. <clears throat> what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? I think that will help us answer what it means to say no one does good. Because remember, Ephesians says, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't reveal the answer yet, okay? Tension, leave some tension. Here we go. Um, here we go. Look at Romans 1.21. If you're going to understand Romans 3.23 that you've heard for years and years and years and you memorized it, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Glory refers to God's beauty, you know, his perfections. You could talk about God's glorious love, his glorious holiness, his glorious justice. It's his beauty. That's his glory, you know. It's, it's what makes him an incredibly beautiful being. There's none like him, okay? That's his glory. We fall short of it. On the one hand, you could say, well, that means we sin. But how is it that we never do good? Okay, so look at this. Uh, look at Romans one twenty one. For although they knew God, they neither, here's our word, glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory, there's our word, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. So people said, We've heard about God. We see what he's made. We don't want him. 
We don't want his glory. It says the heavens declare the glory of God. And people say, you can keep it, God. I want to go after other things. I want to worship animals. Well, we don't worship animals today, but we certainly worship the human body. As we've just talked about in gender transition, there's, there's a glorification of our body as if it's the most important thing. And, and so people say, we don't want the glory of God. We want the glory of humanity and finding your true self and, and all the things we do to make ourselves king. By the way, the, the connection between gender transition and everybody else on the planet is we all want to be king of ourselves, don't we? We all want to be our own God, right? It, it, it's a common sin. It just leads some people down maybe a darker path in some places. But here we want to be our own king, and we don't want God's glory. So what if the answer here is that no one good does good? Oh, and I also take you, I'm not going to take you there now, but later in Romans, I believe Romans 12, it says anything that, that doesn't come from faith is sin. Anything that doesn't come from faith is sin. So I think this is the answer. When people do good works and they don't acknowledge God, it is still sin. Because it's to the glory of humanity. It's to the pride of people. And they fall short of the glory of God. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 12, I believe, Whatever doesn't come from faith is sin. So what I'm telling you is, we are so sinful that even when an unbelieving person, a person without faith, gives a million dollars away, helps people, yes, I would call those good works. It is a good work. I'm glad they're given money. Yes, 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 yes but it falls short of the glory of God because it doesn't acknowledge God for who he is. Okay? Does that make sense? I'm not acknowledging God. I'm trading it in for the glory of humanity. And God says that is sin. It's sin. Even our best stuff is sin. But, remember, without faith it's impossible to please God, the writer of Hebrews says. So with faith... God will transform me, transform you. And it says, again in Ephesians, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, right? Your works are now redeemed. Your works are redeemed. So, so A is this. If you're waiting for my notes, like when is he going to get back to the notes? A is, God has never seen a good human heart apart from his redeemed. If God doesn't give you a new heart when you believe in him, he does, he does do that. When you believe, he gives you a new heart. If you don't believe, you don't have the new heart. You're not born again. You still have a heart of stone. And nothing you will do will be actually considered good by God. Because you've done it for the glory of yourself, the glory of humanity. You haven't honored Him. And He can't take that. He can't stand that. Because He made you. He made you. He owns you. So if you've ever wondered about how it is that no one can do good, no, not one, I believe that is the answer. I believe that's the answer to that question. Okay, part B, getting to the end here, part B. Uh, why pick David? Why pick David? Would you go back to 1 Samuel, only this time 1 Samuel 13? If you didn't keep a finger in that, you're man. Here we go. 1 Samuel 13, uh, 14. Right? Yeah, 1 Samuel 13, 14. Here we are. <clears throat> so, so God's rejecting King Saul, and David's going to be the guy. David's anointed here in this text, uh, in the text in 16. Why did God pick David? Why? God does like shepherds, I think. I think if you can take care of sheep, the idea is you can take care of people. God loves shepherds. But look at this. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, 14. But now your kingdom, that Saul's kingdom, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you've not kept the Lord's command. 
The Lord sought out a man after his own heart. The, the preposition after could be translated according to. It's a man according to God's heart. It's a man who has a similar heart to God. So God looks down from heaven. We looked at it in Psalm 14. And he's looking. Does anybody seek me? Does anybody have a heart like mine? David. David has a heart like mine. He's the guy. What did God see in David's heart? What did God see there? I don't know how, I mean, but in the coming weeks we're going to look at David's heart. Uh, did I give you actually the point in point B there? Uh, he has found hearts that are similar to his own heart. Similar, I believe, is the word in your blank. Similar. There are uh, at least five different classifications of psalms, like, like the book of Psalms, you know. There are psalms of praise, sometimes called hymns of praise. There are psalms of thanksgiving that just give thanks to God for what he's done. There are complaint psalms that I think maybe our brothers and sisters in Charleston are reading, you know, that, that say, why, God, are these things happening but then the complaint psalms say, I trust you. I trust you. Those are the lament psalms of the complaint psalms. Then there's the royal psalms where, where it's kind of like the king is saying, God has favor on the king. God is going to help the king. Those are the royal psalms. And then there's the wisdom psalms where uh, the writer wants to instruct people about God. Wisdom about God. Those are the five mainly the five kind of psalms you'll see. There's some extras in there, you know, repentance and some different things, you know. But, but those are the big categories. What did God see in David's heart? I'm sure that he saw a heart of worship. Wouldn't you think? You could write psalms of praise to God. You could say things like, my soul meditates day and night. You could say the heavens declare the glory of God. You, you, you can say all of these praises and write them down for, for the people of God to use. You've got a heart of worship. Men, what, what does God want to see in our hearts? Worship. I mean, clearly, I think that's clear. He wants to see that we praise Him. Like, like, the, like the hymn psalms do. He wants to see that we give Him thanks for all that He's done for us. He wants to see that when you work hard, at the end of the day, you can still go to bed saying, thank you, God, for what I accomplished today. You, you give thanks. You praise Him. He wants to see that in the hard times, when you read the lament psalms, the complaint psalms, He wants to see that you trust Him, that you depend on Him, that you need Him, and you recognize that you need Him. Like the royal psalms, I think he wants to see that you know that you have his favor, that you're special, you're, you're his child, you're his son. You're a father, but he's your father and he loves you. I, I think he wants to see some of those things. He wants you to know him better like the wisdom psalms say. Know his heart, know his character. Can I just summarize what I'm saying here? Be. He's found hearts that are similar to his own heart. Conclusion. Christian men are called to seek after God's heart. Christian men are called to seek after God's heart. I, we could make a list, couldn't we, of things we're supposed to do in the Christian faith. And I think sometimes as men, we think that there's this list of things we've got to do to be God's man. If I do all of these things, then I'll be God's man. <clears throat> I want you to consider the simplicity of it this morning, men. The simplicity. Um, there's a man in Luke chapter 19. He was a wee little man. Zacchaeus, right? And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Zacchaeus. <laughs> so a couple weeks ago I said, uh, I'm 5'9 and a half, I give myself 5'10, right? You know, I want some extra stature. 
because real men are tall. At least that's my image. By the way, I won't point out the person, but somebody wrote me a wonderful encouragement card the next day, and it said, in my eyes, you're six feet tall. That's right. That's going on my desk. Right on my desk. (laughs) Um, Zacchaeus is a short guy. And I think it's funny that the Bible notes his height. You know, like the writer wants to make sure you know he's a little guy. Imagine having that. You know, your whole life you're thinking, I'm so short. I'm so short. I know what I'll do. I'll make myself a big man by, by working for the Romans and taxing everybody and taking more than my fair share. I'll show them what a big man I am. And the little man became a big man, he thought, by cheating people. And then he had to recognize how short he really was and climb up in a sycamore tree, right? And what did he climb up for? He was seeking Jesus. The Bible says that in Luke 19. He was seeking Jesus. Climb up in the tree. You look like an idiot up there, you know, just perch on a branch. Seeking Jesus. And Jesus says, come down, I'm going to your house today. And that's all it took. And then, and then he, he met with Jesus, experienced Jesus, and that changed him. And suddenly he's like, I'm not going to cheat anybody anymore. I'm just going to do my job, the job that God gave me to do, but do it right. And I'm going to pay people back for how I cheated them. And that's what he did. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. This is a child of Abraham. Salvation's come to this house. Zacchaeus was a little man that wanted to be a big man. And the only way he could really be a big man is by becoming a little man and climbing the tree to see Jesus. You know, man, I I don't know how you grasp for it. Fathers, I don't know how you grasp for it, like to be God's man. But as I read the Bible, it seems like it's really simple. Be a man after God's own heart. Period. Have a heart like his. Love the things he loves. Hate the things he hates. Follow him. Seek him. Climb the tree. Recognize that you're the dirty, rotten, cheating tax collector. Let his grace change you. And then keep, just keep working in life. Keep living that life out in front of others. I, I, don't, I, I think we've, we, have, we, like, we like to have lists I don't know. Sometimes I think the lists are hard on us. You know? Like the, make sure you do your devotions every single day. Make sure you read the Bible every single day. Make sure it's in the morning because the morning is better. Make sure you meet with the Lord. Linger in that time. Better be 45 minutes or you might not meet with Jesus. Make sure you pray. The longer you pray, the better it is. You know, we, 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 we have all these things that we think, that we feel. And I want to be in the Word every day, of course. I'm a person, I'm a man of the Word. Make sure you evangelize every time you meet somebody. Make sure you get some people saved this year. Make sure you're singing as loud as you can in church. Make sure all your children obey completely, 100% of the time. Good man. Make sure you memorize verses. The really spiritual ones do chapters at a time. I heard a guy quote Psalm 119 once. No kidding. In the back of his car, I heard him quote it. I thought, you are a godly man, you know? All those things are good. I want you to be men of prayer, men of worship, men of the word. I want you to seek God, though. I just want you to seek God. And if that means you get the daily bread and open it, you know, and you read that thing, if that means you get an email devotion, you don't have to be a reader, a big reader to be a spiritual man, right? You don't have to be a musician to be a man of worship, right? You don't need to lead 100 people to the Lord this year to be an evangelist. Just live out your faith. Talk about it when it comes up. Make some intentionality. Just just live the Christian life. 
But I think we have a mental checklist and, and we see that we don't always meet it. And God says, I just want to see whether you've got a heart like mine. Do you have a heart like mine? I'm looking down from heaven and I'm looking for men who are seeking me and not seeking their own glory. Because that's what the pagans do. It leads them down all sorts of dark roads. I just want to see a guy who's looking up at me. Just look up at me. Climb the tree. Look. I don't know. I do hope you read the Bible every day. I, I hope that. hope you pray every day. I hope you're a deep man of prayer. I hope we do study the Word and, and, and uh, memorize it. But if your heart's not there, it's for nothing. If you don't love God and love people, it's for nothing. I feel like I heard this at the conference a lot. A lot of warnings to pastors. Maybe that's why I come preaching this way. And I feel like it's for all of us men. You can do all the spiritual things in the world, but if your heart is not seeking God, you're going to go down some dark places. Because it doesn't matter how many verses you've memorized if your heart is seeking after the wrong things. And I loved Bill Hamill, again, preaching his last message to the free church like that. And I remember hearing him talk about, when do I feel closest to the Lord? He's like, I've been a pastor for many years. He's like, I don't feel the closest when I'm in the Bible. And I'm like, oh, heresy, you know. You don't feel the closest to God when you're in the Bible? He says, no, actually, I feel the closest to God when I'm praising him. That's how I get connected to him. So you still got to get in the Bible. But I think sometimes we set up a standard where like, if I don't have this super deep experience with Jesus every day, I must not measure up. No, I just want to know what's going on in your heart. And if you've got a heart that's turned towards God and walking towards him, great. Awesome. If you want to learn how to study the Bible better, we can talk about that too. Follow him. I'm going to pray and close this time up. Um, and I want to, after I pray, I want us to speak some words of blessing to our earthly fathers, if we could. Um, so I'm going to pray. You might want to think about that, and then we'll close this time.